you can put away your hymnals and bulletins, and please take out your Bibles and turn to John chapter 5. John 5, 16 through 29. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered him, My father is working until now, and I am working. And this was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. And so Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Thus ends the reading of God's holy word. Please be seated. Well, good morning. It's great to be with you all, and I'd like to extend a special welcome to our guests who are joining us this Baptism Sunday. Um, now, for those of you who are guests, you may not know, our, our regular practice at GCC is to take books of the Bible and simply preach through them, uh, chapter by chapter, point by point, and verse by verse. So if you have a Bible with you, I'd invite you to keep it open uh, to John chapter 5, as we'll be picking up where we left off last week, uh, John five sixteen. Uh, and let us just commit our time to the Lord in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this day of rest that you have given us. We thank you for this Lord's day as we gather again to celebrate the resurrection of Christ, even as we look ahead to our own resurrection, knowing that because he lives, we too shall live. We thank you for your word, and we thank you for how you use it to sanctify your people and so, Lord, we pray now that you would bless the preaching of your holy word, that it would serve to edify, encourage, challenge, and comfort your people, and that it would bring conviction, repentance, and ultimately salvation to those who don't know you. Be glorified in us now, we pray in the name of Christ, our Lord, Savior, and Mediator. Amen.
So our text this morning is the beginning of an answer that Jesus gives to the Jews who had begun to be offended by some of his claims and actions. Uh, So in the immediate context here, Jesus had just healed a man who had been disabled for 38 years. Jesus told this man simply to rise, pick up his mat, and go. And so the conflict began because Jesus did this on the Sabbath day, and the traditions of the Jews although, as we saw, not actually the law itself. But the traditions of the Jews did not allow anyone to carry anything on the Sabbath day. And so we get this explanation in verse 16 where it says, This was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My Father is working until now, and I am working. Now, this is an absolutely loaded statement from Jesus. But before we unpack it, let us just look to the text and see that the Jews quite clearly caught the implications here. Verse 18, what what was their response to this statement from Christ? This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father making himself equal with God. So notice here that Jesus' answer for why he was not guilty of breaking the Sabbath resulted in the Jews wanting to kill him. For they realized that in his answer, he was claiming equality with God. Notice verse 17, he answers their persecution of him saying, My father is working until now, and I I'm working. So this is his justification for himself, for why he can be doing these things on the Sabbath. My father is working until now, and I am working. Now, what could he be referring to here with my father is working until now? Well, I can see two possible answers, and both of these answers would have the same result, that being Jesus making himself equal with God. So the first answer, my father is working until now, could refer to the ongoing action of God in sustaining and upholding the universe. When God completed his work of creation, he did not simply step back and let creation operate by itself like a wind-up toy or a spinning top that you can just crank and then let it go. Uh, Rather, Scripture tells us repeatedly that God, and specifically God the Son, is actively sustaining or upholding the universe. There's ongoing work of God in keeping the universe functioning. As Colossians 1.17 says of Christ, he is before all things and in him all things hold together. Or as Hebrews 1 verse 3 says of Christ, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. So we can see the first possible answer is that God working until now is referring to the ongoing sustaining of the universe. Uh, As a bouncy castle would deflate if you would turn off the fan, so also the universe cannot function without God actively upholding it, sustaining it, keeping it functioning. And so God, therefore, works on every Sabbath. For if God ever took a day off, 
the entire universe would unravel. And so Christ then is claiming equality with God, saying that just as my Father has been working every Sabbath to uphold the universe, so now I am working. Jesus claims he has the same rights as the Father in this sense. Now the second answer, and the one that I would commend to you, is that Jesus is referring to the work of redemption. John Piper explains it this way. He says, When Adam fell into sin, God got up from his Sabbath rest after creation, and he started to work again. Not this time on creation, but now on redemption, toward a new creation, a new humanity. My father is working until now, and I am working. You do not understand what I am doing, I and my Father are creating a new world, a new humanity, and when we are finished, we will celebrate with a new Sabbath. And that work of redemption and new creation was finished decisively on the cross. And three days later, Jesus rose from the dead to celebrate the victory he had won and the new creation he had decisively obtained and inaugurated. Now he could take his seat with his father on the throne of the universe and enter his Sabbath rest, close quote. So if this is what he meant, then Jesus is saying that his work of healing this man on the Sabbath was part of his ongoing work of redemption that he and his father had been doing ever since man's fall into sin. And so just as God rested from his work of creation only after the work was completed, so also Christ will rest from his work of redemption and new creation only after it is completed. And as a side note here, this has historically been the reason why Christians have placed such emphasis upon Sunday. Just as God completed his work and entered his rest from creation on the seventh day, thereby setting it apart through his action, so also Christ completed his work of redemption, inaugurating the new creation, and entered into his rest on the first day of the week. As scripture calls it, the Lord's Day, called by our spiritual forefathers, the Christian Sabbath. And so here we are, nearly 2,000 years later, commemorating again the completion of Christ's work as we are gathered together for our weekly celebration of the resurrection of Christ, the Lord's Day. So notice that whichever answer you take, uh, either way, we see that Christ is linking himself and his work to the Father's work and authority claiming in some sense the authority of God for himself. Verse 18, making himself equal with God. And this is the question that will confront us continually throughout this text this morning. The fact is, nobody can say the kinds of things that Jesus says in this text and simply be a good moral teacher, but not divine. We will all have to make our choice. Given the claims of Christ, he is truly either God or a blasphemer. We will all either have to side with the Pharisees 
and conclude that it was right to kill him, or we will have to fall at his feet and honor him as our Lord. Let's look at more of his claims. Let's continue in the text. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. So notice that while Jesus did answer the Jews in verse 16 who thought he was breaking the Sabbath, notice now that he does not defend himself against the charge that he had made himself equal with God. Rather, he begins to explain his relationship to the Father. He begins to explain that there is unity between the Father and the Son. The Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. So notice the Son is not acting independently from the Father. He is not competing with him. He is not opposed to him in any way. But rather, we see the work that Christ is doing is in perfect alignment with the will and the work of the Father. And so they are one in purpose. Verse 20. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing, and greater works than these will he show him so that you may marvel. The relationship between the Father and the Son is such that the Father shows the Son what he is doing. So notice here, Jesus has knowledge of the Father. And Jesus' knowledge of the Father and of his will goes far beyond any other. The Father, in his love for the Son, shows the Son his will. And the Son, in his love for the Father, perfectly fulfills that will. And so we see here again the theme that was repeated, uh, the theme is now repeated that was shown to us in the introduction of John's gospel, and that theme is this. The Son makes the Father known. Jesus is the fullest representation of what God the Father is like. As we saw in the introduction, John 1.18, No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. And Jesus says here, there are greater works yet to come. Remember the background to this discussion was Jesus healing a disabled man by the pool of Bethesda. And Jesus says, greater works are yet to come that you may marvel that you would be amazed, that you would stand in awe. So now we ask, what are these greater works? What are these greater things that Jesus is going to do? Verse 21. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. What an amazing statement. Jesus says, as the Father has the power to raise the dead and give them life. Remember, through the Old Testament, you would have seen um, God through Elijah raising the widow's son. Uh, We see this power of God to give life to the dead. And now Jesus says, just as the Father can give life to the dead, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. 
Now, can you just imagine how that would have sounded to the Jews, right? Put yourself back into the middle of this conflict, right? You've begun disputing with this man. You've been arguing with him. Uh, You've been been trying to sidestep the miraculous healing of the man and instead focus on your traditions around the Sabbath. And then, not only does Jesus make a statement about working on the Sabbath that would make him equal with God, he then claims for himself the divine power and authority to raise the dead to life. And Jesus, as we will see later in John, backed up this talk with action. John 11, I'm sure you know the story. Jesus' friend Lazarus dies. And after the man has been dead for four days, Jesus comes to the town and says, roll open the stone, right? Open the tomb. And then Jesus simply says, Lazarus, come forth. John eleven forty four, and the man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face covered with a cloth. Jesus claimed for himself the power to raise from the dead anyone whom he chose, whom he chose. And I believe that Jesus meant more by this than simply physical resurrection we can speak of that as simple. Look down with us, with me at verse 25. Jesus speaks here again of resurrection. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear his voice, will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. So first off, we see that there is a future physical bodily resurrection from the dead that is coming. Jesus outlines this in verses 28 and 29. He says that hour is coming, but notice he says the hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. Now, that final day, that final resurrection of all people, uh, that is still in our future. That cannot be said to be here already. So then we ask, what does Jesus mean when he says that the hour is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and live? Well, let us consider some of what we've already seen in John. John 1.14 says of Christ that in him was life, and the life was the light of men. John 3.16, God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. John 3, 35 and 36. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. And in John four thirteen, Jesus says, Whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never thirst, For the water that I give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. So consider what we've heard and learned about Jesus. Jesus has life. He is the source of life. And he offers living water. He says he gives life to those whom he chooses. And I think it is not only the physical life, as we see with Lazarus, 
but spiritual life. Scripture teaches that all of us are by nature dead in transgression and sin. Ephesians 2 verse 1. We are by nature blind. We are lost. We are slaves to sin. John 8 34. Our hearts are stone. Ezekiel 36. And so we must be born again. We must be given new life. And so we see that we are all by nature very much like Lazarus. Dead. Not physically dead, but spiritually dead. Dead in transgression and sin. That is, unless God makes us alive. We are unable to see the kingdom of God unless the Spirit causes us to be born again, John 3.3. 3. Unable to find spiritual life unless the Son grants it to us. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. So brothers and sisters, if you are in Christ, if you have a new nature, if you have been born again, then give thanks to the Son, for he has chosen to make you alive, to grant you life. A spiritually dead person can't make themselves alive any more than a physically dead person can make themselves alive. A person with a heart of stone cannot change their own heart. A person who is a slave to sin cannot choose to set themselves free from slavery. A person cannot cause themselves to be born again any more than they caused themselves to be born the first time. And so in all of these examples, all these analogies that we see from Scripture, what we see they all have in common is that they all require the work of God. You who are dead in trespasses and sins, Ephesians 2.1, God made alive together with Christ, Ephesians 2.5. You who are in the grip of the evil one, God has delivered from the domain of darkness and has transferred you to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom you have redemption, the forgiveness of sins, Colossians 1.13. You who had a heart of stone, consider the new covenant promise in Ezekiel 36, as it was God who said, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So if you have spiritual life, give glory to God and give thanks to the Son. For it is only because the Son has chosen to give it to you. As he says, as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. Let's continue on, verse 22. For as the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. 
So now the next staggering claim made by Christ is that the Father has appointed him to be the judge of all. As we'll see in verse 29, to receive judgment is the opposite of receiving life. And so the Son has therefore been given the power to grant life, as we've seen, physical life, spiritual life, and eternal life. And the Son has also been granted the authority to bring judgment, that is to condemn, to pronounce guilty, and to send away for punishment. On the last day, we will all stand before Christ as our judge, and we'll come back to that later. But notice now, the Father has given authority to the Son so that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. The Jews were right in detecting that Jesus was implying he is equal with the Father. For he says it quite explicitly here. That all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. This goes far beyond what any mere creature could rightfully claim. No mere servant, even a servant who would be acting with the authority of their master, would ever claim equality with their master. No ambassador, envoy, or representative would claim to deserve the same honor as their king. So notice Jesus says this, And if we are to honor the Son just as we honor the Father, then we are forced to recognize that the Son is divine. As John has shown us in his introduction, going back to the beginning of this account, Jesus is not just a man. He is fully man, but as we see John 1.1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Through him all things were made, and apart from him was not anything made that was made. Jesus is God the Son, the eternal second person of the Trinity. He has eternally existed in perfect relationship with the Father and the Spirit. And here now, Jesus is outlining some of the role that has been assigned to him. The Son has been granted the role of judge. So that, for the purpose of him being honored, just as the Father is honored. And so this speaks directly to the conflict between Jesus and the Jews of his day. Now remember back to this conflict that we've been seeing here. Uh, the Jews had accused Jesus of two things. Uh, firstly, of Sabbath breaking. And secondly, of blasphemy. Right? They believed that Jesus was dishonoring the name of God. Uh, breaking the third commandment by making himself out to be equal with God. And so in this argument, the Jews, they saw themselves as defending the honor of God against this blasphemer, against this Sabbath breaker. And so Jesus now turns the tables on them, doubles down, and, and declares that if they do not honor him, if they do not honor the Son, 
they cannot honor the Father either. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. So however noble the Jews may have viewed themselves as being in their opposition to Jesus, Jesus makes it clear. If you oppose me, you cannot honor the Father. Anyone who truly honors and loves the Father will receive love and honor the Son. For the Son is the most perfect and fullest revelation of the Father. Christ makes the Father known such that when Philip asks him, Lord, show us the Father and it will be enough for us, Jesus answers him, Have I been with you so long and yet you do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. You cannot reject the Son and think that you are still honoring the Father. If you do not honor the Son, you do not honor the Father. 1 John 2, 23, no one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Now, that has massive implications. Now, we are told today that to declare that there is only one way to God is a form of bigotry. Right? You are being unkind. You, need, you are being hateful by not accepting other religions as being equally valid with your own. We are told we need to affirm that there are many ways to God. There are many paths people can take. And so some people follow Islam, others Buddhism, others are just vaguely spiritual, and we are told in our day that we are to affirm these as all being equal paths, all of them leading to God, ultimately to the same place. We're all seeking the same things, just taking different paths to get there. Brothers and sisters, whatever we may be told by others, Notice from this text, Jesus does not leave this option open to us. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. If you do not give to Christ the honor he is due, that being the same honor you would give to the Father, then you do not honor the Father either. As Jesus will say later in John, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And so for the Jews of Jesus' day, he explains, if you don't honor me, don't fool yourselves into thinking that you're honoring the Father. The same would apply to the Jews of our day. If they have rejected Christ, if they have denied the Son, They are not worshiping the Father. They are not honoring God. They are lost, along with the Muslims, Hindus, Buddhists, secularists, the vaguely spiritual but not religious, the atheists, and everyone else who would reject Christ. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. 
And so the world can call this bigotry if they want to. They can use nasty names and insults to try to bully us into abandoning our faith. But the fact remains, we must hold fast to the words of our Lord. For there truly is only one way to God. Let's consider. The Father did not send his Son into the world to die a brutal death on the cross to simply become another option on the table. God the Son did not shed his blood to simply give us more variety in our choice of legitimate paths to God. Christ is the only way. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Here we come to the good news, to the free offer of the gospel. Whoever hears the word and believes will have eternal life. They will not come into judgment, that is, they will not be condemned, but instead will have eternal life. And what is it to believe? In the Gospel of John, we will see this is to receive. It is to come to Christ in faith. It is to turn from sin and to follow him. Those who do have the promise that they will not be condemned. They will not come into judgment but will receive eternal life. How glorious that promise of eternal life. For Christians, for followers of Christ, those who believe in the Lord Jesus, we know death is not the end. Death, in fact, has been defeated. Death has lost its sting. Death is swallowed up in victory. For Jesus died in the place of his people, Jesus tasted death so that through death he might destroy the one who had the power of death. That is the devil. Hebrews 2.14 Death lay hold of him, but death could not hold him. Jesus rose from the dead, and because he lives, we too shall live. Death is a defeated foe. Now, unless the Lord returns quickly... Most of us in this room will still face death. But know for Christians that we do so very differently than others. For we do so in hope. We face death knowing that we have eternal life. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. So notice something about this. Jesus says that this is a present reality. Those who hear and believe have eternal life. Right? We have it now. Those who hear and believe have passed from death to life. And so even as we are awaiting still the final day of resurrection, there is a very true sense in which Christians already have 
eternal life. We already have passed from death to life, which is why Christians do not need to fear death. For us to be absent from the body is to be present with Christ. Paul even said that his desire, as he's considering uh, what's going on for him, that his desire was to depart and to be with Christ, for that would be far better than continuing in the body. Now, of course, we are not God, so we must not seek to take such matters into our own hands. But we should live with the knowledge that our relationship to death has been transformed by our relationship with Christ. And the fact that he has conquered death. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself. This is interesting language. Notice he says, an hour is coming and is now here. So just as Christians will have eternal life in the future and do already have it, just as we will pass from death into life and have already passed from death into life, so Jesus says the hour is coming and is now here. Now this is complicated, but bear with me. I'll try to make it as simple as possible. Uh, this is what theologians call, big words, inaugurated eschatology. Inaugurated eschatology. Uh, so eschatology is our study of last things, that which will happen in the end. Uh, think of our, the final and eternal defeat of death, uh, the summing up of all things in Christ, the final fulfillment of all the promises of God. Uh, that's all part of eschatology proper, uh, the study of last things. And by calling it inaugurated eschatology, uh, what it's saying is that this has already begun. Uh, the end time victory has invaded the presence. In a real sense, it is here now. Uh, heaven is breaking in, so to speak. So that Jesus can say, the hour is coming and is now here. We will have eternal life and we have eternal life. We will pass from death into life and we have passed from death into life. The eschatological victory is here now, but not yet in its fullness. And so you'll sometimes hear theologians speak of this tension in Scripture between the already and the not yet. And that's what they're getting at here. Uh, they're drawing it from texts like this. The hour is coming and is now here. It is future, but that future glory is manifesting in the present. Christ has inaugurated his kingdom. It has begun it is manifesting, although we do not yet see it in its fullness. So D.A. Carson writes, The resurrection life for the physically dead in the end time is already being manifest as life for the spiritually dead. And so, as at the last day, the physically dead will hear the voice of the Lord and, and rise, so now, those who are spiritually dead, dead in sin, are hearing the voice of Christ, and those whom the Son chooses are receiving life. And Christ has that power in himself. He has life in himself, and he grants that life to whom he will, physical, spiritual, and eternal. And so this is one of those areas where we see the gospel is gloriously deep. 
These depths are wonderful. We should be grateful. There is so much to it. And yet we must also remember that the gospel is simple enough for a child. Kids, if that was all complicated, keep this in mind. That what Christ is saying is simple enough for you. Believe in him and you will be saved. If you have heard the gospel and believed, if you have confessed your sins, have turned from them, and trusted in Christ alone for salvation, then you are among those who will live. If, however, you are among those who have not yet repented, there is a solemn warning for you in this text as well. Let's finish up our text together. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Now, if you've read the Gospels, you're likely familiar with this title, Son of Man. You may know that was Jesus' favorite title for himself. And Jesus says here, he has been granted the authority to judge because he is the Son of Man. Now, where does that come from? Well, firstly, we see that title all over the book of Ezekiel. God is constantly calling Ezekiel Son of Man. Um, But that doesn't shed a lot of light on why the Son of Man being granted authority um, to judge uh, would be, it doesn't give an explanation for that question. However, the other place where we see Son of Man in the Old Testament does. Uh, Turn with me in your Bibles to Daniel chapter 7. We'll read verses 13 and 14. Daniel chapter 7, 13 and 14. uh, uh, Daniel writes this. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. So Jesus, in using this title, Son of Man, is linking himself to this figure in Daniel 7. This is a messianic title. Jesus is the Messiah. He is the Son of Man, the one prophesied in Daniel 7. After his resurrection, what does Jesus declare? He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Remember, Jesus ascended into heaven by a cloud, and where then did he go? To the Ancient of Days. Hebrews 12, 12 and 13 says, When Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. Jesus is the Son of Man who has been given dominion. His dominion is an everlasting dominion. All peoples, nations, and languages must serve him. So brothers and sisters, you who call Christ Savior and Lord, you affirm with the scriptures that he is the ruler of all the cosmos. 
So the question comes, is Christ functionally the Lord over your life? Would you affirm his lordship of all things, but withhold something in your own heart? Are you seeking to obey him from the heart? Sure, you may have outwardly religious things that you can point to, but then again, so did the Pharisees. A show of outward religiosity, a show of outward religion, is not the same as genuine love for Christ. Remember the rebuke that Jesus gave to the Jews of his day, quoting from Isaiah. Isaiah was right when he said of you, This people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. If we will call Jesus Christ our Lord and Savior, then we must submit every part of our lives to his lordship. Our hearts must be his all the way down and all the way across. It is all his. May Christ truly be said to be the Lord of the cosmos and the Lord of the hearts of his people. To him has been entrusted all judgment. He will judge the living and the dead. So back to this solemn warning. We will all stand before him. Jesus says those who have done good will be raised to life. And those who have done evil will be raised to judgment. And so this raises the all-important question. Who has done good? Who has done good? If the good will be raised to life and the evil will be raised to judgment, who has done good? By what standard? How good do you have to be in order to be given this life? Is that something we can earn on our own? Do our good deeds simply need to outweigh our bad deeds on the cosmic scales? No. In fact, the biblical answer is that if we are looking at our own deeds, our own works, that which we can produce in ourselves, we are all condemned. Romans 3.23 All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 3, 10 and 11, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. So the question is not whether your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds. For you see that even the good deeds we do are tainted by sin. Mixed motives, impure hearts that fail to love God as we are required to love him. Scripture testifies, James 2 verse 10, that whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. Have you ever broken any of God's laws? Do we have any perfect people among us here today? Who has perfectly loved God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength for every moment of their lives? Any who have perfectly honored father and mother? Never cursed, never disobeyed, never stolen, never slandered, 
never coveted in your heart, never lusted in your heart, never hated their neighbor. All have sinned. None is righteous. What's more, we are born into a broken covenant. Nothing we can do in our lives can solve what already happened in Eden. And so we are not given the possibility of earning salvation through our works. For even if you never sinned again from this point on, would that undo what you had done? Would that undo what Adam had done as your covenant head? If you were judged on the basis of your works alone, what would that verdict be? Guilty. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But my friends, the good news is that the very one who will stand as our judge the one before whom you will stand to give an account, that same Son of Man to whom authority and dominion belongs. He has given himself as a sacrifice for sinners. The judgment against sin that we deserved, he has taken on himself. And so justice has been satisfied for all who will ever believe in Jesus. Now that final day of judgment is coming. All who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Then comes the judgment. So we ask, are you ready to be judged by the Son of Man? Those who hear his word and believe God will be granted eternal life. If you have not yet, I implore you, turn from your sin. Trust in Christ alone. Be baptized upon profession of faith. Join the people of God as we serve our Lord together. Do not oppose Christ. Do not challenge his authority, for he has all authority. Judgment has been entrusted to him. Repent and believe the good news. Amen.